Welcome to Good Government Illinois' podcast, Politics 101 with David Orr. Today, continuing our series on the municipal elections of 2023, our guest is Professor and former Alderman Dick Simpson. Uh, To listen to this podcast, or if you want to catch the two previous ones in this series, one with Alderman Maria Haddon and the other with Alderman Scott Wagesback, uh, check us out on Spotify or rss.com. Welcome, Dick. Good to see you, David. I, I'm going to um, give a very brief um, introduction because it's a very overwhelming uh, history that Dick has. Um, uh, he was the person that I learned so much from. Uh, he, he was in the city council from 1971 to 79. And so he was there part of the time when old man Daly, the Richard J. Daly was there, you know. So that was a pretty fascinating thing. Uh, and I was so proud because I came in in 79 when Dick left, you know, when he finished in 79. And uh, I was kind of thrilled that they gave me his old office. It was probably the worst yeah. office, smallest and back by the bathroom. But I saw it as real honor. Um, Dick has also been a professor for a long time at UIC. He's authored more than 20 books, uh, many, many articles. Uh, his most recent one is fascinating. It's called The Good Fight. Life Lessons from a Chicago Progressive, uh, and so much more. And I remember when I first was elected, I was trying to decide, well, wow, can I, can I, have be, can I stay a professor while I was going to be a full-time alderman? Uh, I couldn't do it. But the gentleman who's our guest, Dick Simpson, all these years, when he was serving as an alderman, he was also a professor. He was also writing all these books and articles. Um, let's put it like this. Uh, he's extraordinarily disciplined unlike myself. Um, So Dick, um, we're going to do a little bit of going back uh, and using some of your academic and political skills that merge together in uh, an analysis that few people have of how Chicago government works. If it's okay with you, we'll start there. Um, Oh, but by the way, I want to ask you this. um, If you don't know and you haven't seen uh, Dick's book, uh, the one I mentioned, isn't that the one we've got the picture where Dick's in a city council and the sergeant arms of police are trying to control him? Was that the famous? That's that's the famous photograph. Uh, I had the audacity to question one of uh, Mayor Daly's nepotistic appointments, and that sort of made him mad, and he asked the uh, Sergeant at Arms and the policeman to seat me, but they were too small for the task. <laughs> do you remember? Was that? Do you remember the date of that? Seventy. It was nineteen seventy-one. Uh, oh, seventy-one. Ju- yeah, July of seventy-one. Okay, because the interesting thing is, I was there, Dick. Okay, with a bunch of students because I was actually teaching at Mundelein College at the time, and I had a miraculously scheduled a meeting with Old Man Daly after the council meeting. But because what happened, basically, Dick was pointing out all the patronage and other kind of favors that Mayor Daly was trying to give to his sons. And when Dick challenged that, the mayor just had a fit. And, you know, all of his uh, followers were, were trying to beat the hell out of Dick. But anyway, because of that, Dick, my meeting with the mayor was canceled because we were the young, only young people left in the city council that day. <laughs> so. Yes, indeed. It got uh, pretty cleared out. So that... That was the same day. Okay, well, let's, um, 
let's start with this, because, for example, with some of your great background, uh, you know, one of your books is on Chicago corruption and how Chicago and Cook County uh, certainly could be argued the most corrupt in the nation. I think some startling figures, what, maybe 2,000 politicians convicted and sent to federal prison, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is there a generalization, because uh, there's lots of different kind of corruption, are there certain things that over the years, and these were not aldermen, they might have been state reps, state senators, commissioners, is there something that uh, was more common among what they did? What did they do to get in so much trouble? Well, the interesting thing we learned when we looked at the 2000 convictions since 1976 in which people have gone to, um, elected officials have gone to prison and uh, after being convicted in federal court, is there different patterns of corruption? So as you know, David, the most common pattern among Chicago aldermen, 35 of them have now gone to jail uh, and several are in the wings expected to go to jail. Uh, most often they were involved in zoning and building inspections. Uh, they would get an envelope with $500 and gee whiz, uh, David would get a, a, a zoning that would allow in a single family neighborhood to build a high rise uh, or something of that equivalency. In fact, um, the item you cite was the appointment of Tom Keene Jr. And Tom Keene Sr. went to federal prison for selling the street that was uh, sort of an alley that was um, became the Sears Tower. They had to take over the alley and he got what were called legal fees. Uh, he was involved in a lot of other corruption, but the zoning and building uh, fee uh, inspections tended to be this, the alderman's corruption of choice. Blagojevich famously uh, appointed people to like pension boards and other state boards who gave um, uh, special contracts, uh, what even in the 19th century was called contracts with thievery written between the lines. And to get one of these, so he would appoint his friends to let's say the pension board and they would give out, uh, they would choose the advisor to the pension board and give them a fat contract that worth several million dollars. And they would get a kickback fee of maybe 10%, but Bogoyevich would get $25,000 for his uh, campaign fund to be reelected as governor. And he hoped to be reelected, to be elected as president as Barack Obama was. So every level had a different one. One of my favorite ones uh, is the lady who was in Dixon, Illinois. Um, she was the city comptroller and treasurer she wrote check, she had the checks written to herself under a fake name of, that sounded like it was to Dixon, Illinois. <laughs> and she stole $53 million from Dixon, Illinois. I had no idea there was $53 million in government money in <laughs> Dixon, Illinois town, yes. at the time. But it took 20 years. I mean, she had horses, she had a, se a separate home uh, in uh, Florida. Um, Betty Loren Matisse and Cicero um, ended up with an insurance scam uh, so in which uh, she and her husband set it up so that the, uh, they got a kickback from the insurance company uh, for, uh, for uh, getting the city contract for insurance for Cicero. So every unit of government had its own sort of special way of stealing, but it was all related to machine politics. It was often related to patronage uh, and frequently related to nepotism. 
Right, and now bringing up too, um, of course, you you uh, were there with Vidoliak too. I just remember because having going to events at Eddie Vidoliak's house, uh, who was uh, remember famous for leading the charge against Harold Washington back when Harold was mayor. Um, uh, he did a similar thing. He maybe he bought legally. He was never convicted for this, but basically he took over the alley behind his house. I think to build a big tennis court, but. Um, so given there's all sorts of corruption we see, it, it, I've had this impression um, over the years, but I've not done the research that you do, that because these guys for years, they, they had to swear their loyalty to Mayor Daley, first and second. And so they had to vote the way they were told. But what old man Daley basically promised them, because these were some very powerful people, you mentioned uh uh, well, and we'll go through all the names. Very powerful individuals expect a lot of the government. So the thing that Daly would give them is pretty much control, control over their local wards. They were kings. And that led to so much enormous corruption, particularly said in zoning and permits and all sorts of things. And there were people, at least my experience is that people felt like they had to give to these powerful elected officials. They may hate them. They better not show up not having contributed when the time came. Well, in one of the famous cases, one of my former, other former governors who was in federal prison at the same time as uh, Blagojevich was George Ryan. And mm -hmm. all of the Secretary of State's officials had to buy tickets to a political dinner, a political event. And uh, they, they, we were talking about several thousand dollars worth of tickets. And most of them didn't make that big a salary. So what they would do is take bribes to give out driver's licenses, which uh, ended up uh, then taking the money and buying political tickets that would give George Ryan the campaign funds he needed. The problem with that is they gave licenses to people who couldn't read the signs in English, who didn't know how to drive. Uh, you just, particularly truckers were given licenses without the ability to drive a large truck. And so they killed more than nine people, including three children. Oh. Uh, on the highways of Illinois with these, uh, what were essentially fraudulent licenses. Wow. Let, let's be, um, as I jump now to see whether or not how much we've improved since that time, remember, Dick has a lot of books. Just look them up. There are some fascinating books, Corrupt Chicago, book about, was it uh, Rogues? What, Rebels Rogues? and Rubber Stamps. That's Rubber Stamps, which is a a great explanation of what happens. Now, let's just jump that uh, forward because um, you've been involved all this time as a professor since you left the city council. To what extent have you seen significant changes? I mean, there's still people going to jail and probably others that ought to. But in terms of uh, reforms and stuff, which you fought for for so long, uh, what, what changes do you see uh, that are significant from these old days? Well, the biggest single change um, it has been in cutting back patronage. Uh, the original Shackman trials in the 1970s uh, produced evidence of 35,000 patronage employees in local government. When the Sorich trial happened under, he was a political uh, he was in charge of giving out jobs under Richard M. Daly for Daly's patronage army. Uh, that number had dropped to the clout list of only 5,000. So there are fewer patronage jobs than there used to be for a variety of reasons, but uh, the uh, Shackman cases were, were strongly among them. 
Um, as you know, you signed the, the uh, Shackman decree for your office. Your successor, although theoretically they've signed, is still producing a lot of patronage in that office. Um, but patronage has improved. Uh, the first, you actually uh, introduced the first ethics ordinance in the history of Chicago. Now, we started out as a town in 1833. We became a city in 1837. And it took till 1987 to have the first ethics ordinance. Since then, we've had a number of significant improvements. Um, Harold Washington signed the first executive order for ethics when he took office first in 83. Uh, Lori Lightfoot signed uh, the executive order that uh, began to curtail aldermanic privilege. We have a much stronger ethics committee. We have an inspector general. There was theoretically an inspector general under Richard J. Daly. They didn't call him that, but uh, what he did was simply report to the mayor of what was going on and it was completely secret and no convictions ever came out of that office nor any improvements in government. So if you take it overall and looking at the state and the other units of government, we have significantly improved. But look at the situation we have today. We have three major trials within the next year. Uh, the first one is the McLean trial, which involves four people and uh, who are uh, charged with corruption, including the head of Commonwealth Edison Corporation at the time. Uh, we have the Madigan trial, which it's hard to tell how many people are involved besides Mike Madigan in that trial, but it's several. Uh, Mike Madigan was the most powerful figure in Illinois politics at the time uh, the indictment came down. And we have the Ed Burke trial, which also involves a series of aldermen and developers. Um, so when you see such major trials in which millions of dollars have been stolen through corruption in various fashions, then that's a really significant uh, level of corruption that still exists. So to the extent we get rid of machine politics, uh, we elect good government people who in fact, carry out their promises. Not everybody who's promised good government uh, has carried them out. Blagojevich promised good government, but we got, what we got was bad government. But in general, yes, we're making progress, but we're still the most corrupt city in the United States, and we're the third most corrupt state based on the convictions that have actually occurred in federal court. Let just I want to highlight something because you started out how Patridge. For those people who don't follow this too well, the beef that I would say you and I um, and others would have against patronage it would almost be different if, like, for example, uh, the politicians picking people for those jobs. You know, we're picking people that were dedicated, et cetera. But from your experience, Dick, and mine, and anybody followed around a local government, you know, I was astounded uh, in 1979 or 80 when I came into office and that was a person kind of in charge of towing that didn't give a crap about it. We had lots of abandoned cars and, and East Rogers Park, very, uh, you know, tight neighborhood, people coming home after being a nurse at 11 o'clock at night and couldn't park, infuriating things. And this guy, you know, always says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who my cloud is? He didn't give a crap about any of this stuff. Or the head of the mental health group was a, a hack picked. So, 
one, it, uh, it wastes so much money. It then often means services dramatically hurt. Uh, it also means good people who want to serve government don't have the chance. In the same way with we call little person's patronage of the jobs, big person's patronage of the contracts. There's all sorts of people get these contracts that, again, history has shown us they don't do a good job, whether it's cleaning the schools or other kinds of things. So it really, in, in all the books that you've written, in my experiences, is something that really hurts to have effective government. So that's why I think we try and... We tried to... Um... We tried to put a, a dollar cost on it, and what we concluded was that every year we lose more than $500 million in the state to what might be called a corruption tax. Yeah. Um, it's actually much higher, but that was the best we could do based on court cases and exposés and newspapers and so forth to try and estimate the minimum cost to the taxpayer. Now, if you think about the need to increase property taxes currently, Uh, $500 million would not would mean we wouldn't have to do that, you know, that we could pay off the pensions over time. We could uh, improve services. Um, there's a lot we could do if we weren't having to suffer under the corruption. And to those that think, well, isn't that cute that Chicago's so corrupt? It is, there is a real cost to taxpayers in addition to all the crime that it promotes. Yeah, and just since you mentioned it, because it's a, a favorite um, of mine, um, and, and, and it's partly still going on, we're making great strides. The whole tax system, in a way, and the assessment process and the board review, that great kind of clever plan of Madigan and Barrios and all other people involved um, is a wonderful way to basically uh, make a lot of money for themselves, because they have all these attorneys that make money for all these, uh, I will, you know, I will get your tax bill lowered. Uh, they will appeal your taxes, et cetera. Uh, and often there's all sorts of shenanigans as we've seen over and over again. Uh, in fact, I think Fritz Kage, who was reforming a lot of that, and the evidences showed that we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that homeowners would not have had to pay if there weren't all the significant commercial breaks given by some of these, let's say, hacks and or worse in these positions of power. And even though we now have a reform-minded assessor, uh, we still have a, lots of problems with an obscure place called border review. And there's a whole nother problem on a whole nother layer called PTAB. Uh, all these things are created basically to provide jobs for insiders' friends, and then they funnel the money back. And the only losers are the main losers, the taxpayers who don't realize how they're getting, getting fleeced. But that, I do think, as we're seeing some improvements, at least I've got my fingers crossed, that will be a stunning, a very stunning turnaround if Fritz Kage is able to keep going the way he is and if we can make some changes in the Board of Review. Um, so, again, I'm just... I'm just this week, the, uh, one of the employees from the uh, Board of Review was convicted of stealing, uh, essentially took bribes to lower... Uh, tax appeals, which uh, shouldn't have been lowered. Uh, but we also, the Madigan trial is probably going to involve uh, some of those same issues because Mike Madigan's law firm and Burke's law firm are the ones that are the, the, uh, the biggest uh, firms uh, to get uh, reductions for 
uh, major property tax owners like uh, Burke got a re reduction for Trump Tower. Um, right, right. There was hundreds of millions of dollars over time. And, and that's why you fought uh, all your life against what we'd see as conflicts of interest. Unfortunately, some changes taking place there. But how could Ed Burke, as this powerful chairman of the Finance Committee, be conducting businesses with major airlines and powerful banks and Trump Tower and all that? Um, you don't see that in many other cities. Unfortunately, I think there's been significant changes there. So that is probably one of the bright spots um, of the last few years. Um, and we'll see to what extent that we can hold on to preventing those blatant conflicts of interest where Alderman is able to use their influence in incredible ways. Like, how are you gonna, how are you gonna say no to a Mike Madigan uh, or to an Ed Burke? Um, when it comes to this kind of decision relating to their uh, legal request to, to get some help. So uh, I, I'm hopeful, but we'll see. Uh, let me ask more about a little bit more about before we leave this, um, you know, we talk about automatic prerogative. Let's, let's get into some of the suggestions that you have, what we could do. I mean, some of it's happened, fortunately, but what we can do to make the council or the city work better, period. Uh, I, I know you've got a number of things in your book related to participation, which is very, very important, but just take it wherever you want, because you, you really have lots of good ideas. Well, there's some that are uh, prohibitions and some that uh, are changes in the system. So in prohibitions, um, the, the way, even in the Lori Lightfoot transition team that you served on, uh, that we phrased it is it's perfectly fine for aldermen to have voice in decisions like zoning or permits. Uh, they do often reflect the community. They understand the problems in the community and the downtown planners don't always do as well. But the problem gets to be when they have the clout, they simply get to make the decision. And so with aldermanic prerogative curtailed, we've curtailed it for licenses and fees but we've not curtailed it for zoning. And I've always favored community zoning boards. And so in terms of the uh, permission, I think uh, things like uh, the opening up of the participatory budgeting process that's happened in seven or eight wards each year in Chicago, where the citizens decide how the city's gonna spend its money on services in their particular board. I think where uh, the community zoning boards are absolutely essential, hearings are held in the community and citizens get a really fair hearing that they don't always get in the downtown uh, zoning process. I think we ought to have something like a ward assembly uh, that we that I had when I was alderman. And so the more participation we get, the, the more obvious it becomes what uh, what's going on and, and the fairer the process. Uh, when I was alderman again, we downzoned the lakefront. We were already at the density of Tokyo on Lakeview, and we downzoned the lakefront working with community groups so that we couldn't build any more high rises and make it even more dense without, uh, because the streets couldn't take the traffic, it wasn't parking, and so on. So I think citizen participation is a very important component. I think it's important. Uh, to continually strengthen the inspector general. I've been glad to see the city inspector general can now undertake cases without having to have them referred and that often in many of our review 
processes in the different branches of government, uh, you don't have to make public who the citizen was who complained, uh, because particularly in police cases in the past, um, the citizen figured if the cop knew who complained, they would uh, have a very bad fate uh, as a citizen, that they'd be beat up or perhaps killed. Um, so there, there's no one solution. Uh, in uh, the Corrupt Illinois book, we suggest about 10 things. But the biggest overriding one is we have to change machine politics. Um, as long as there is a culture, as long as there's machine politics, there's a culture of corruption, which makes it all right for the individual employee to steal money or to write crooked, crooked contracts for big bribes and those kinds of things. So that culture has to change. And uh, that's a long-term process. One of the few things which is a major breakthrough is we now require for the first time uh, civics classes, not the old fashioned kind like the three branches of government, but civic engagement classes at both the eighth grade and high school to graduate from high school. That's never been a requirement before. Many of the schools didn't teach it or didn't teach it well. And as you know, from when having, teach, having taught American government classes and involved students in civic engagement, that can be a transformative experience. And essentially we're creating new citizens who aren't already buying into the fatal view that only machine politics can work in Chicago and Illinois. Yeah, and, 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 and understanding politics is so important uh, and it's even, I guess, greater important when you realize the rise of, uh, uh, you know, facts don't matter anymore, that kind of thing. Um, because otherwise, you, we might all agree that guns are a problem, but we can't agree on any solutions because we can't agree on certain facts or we don't understand um, uh, if a politician says something, does it really mean anything? Or we assume they're all crooked, et cetera. So any kind of um, understanding the politics, understanding how systems work, uh, participating can be a wonderful way to do it. Just quickly, for those who don't know, remember Dick led the way on this. Um, like for example, um, this idea of a, uh, a zoning board was so important. So it was one of the first things I did when I was elected, like I said in 79 when Dick was leaving um, to, to go back to full-time teaching. Um, we did that because, you know, you win a close race. You know, half the voters were against you and people are suspicious. And so I created a zoning board and the chairman of our zoning board um, was a person who worked for my opponent um, intentionally, you know, a very decent person who had a different choice. Um, but it really helped us when we had controversial issues around zoning. And like I said before, that's something that all of them should have an influence over but if in fact they are the last word period, then we have what we see is, is why we have so little affordable housing or CHA housing, because certain neighborhoods could say, we are not gonna have any subsidized housing on our ward, at least not for poor people, and blocked it for years. Um, so yeah, there's, there are consequences for all these things, what you say about the old, old machine ways. Uh, let me ask you just some, some little things, again, with your experience. What would you, um, would you favor a smaller city council than we have today? I don't. Um, the Home Rule Commission back in the, in, uh, the 70s uh, uh, suggested cutting the city council in half. Uh, other people have suggested other numbers. 
but I favor the larger city council for two reasons. First of all, it behaves more like a legislature and less like a corporate board. Uh, many of the suburban city councils have only five members or seven or some number like that. A few are at 15, but none are very large. And so they tend to be pretty insular. Um, the, uh, the fact that we have 50 aldermen, I think, is important from a legislative side. But beyond that, um, as you know, it was hard enough representing 50 or 60,000 people in a ward. If you cut the city council to uh, say 25, then you're representing 100,000 citizens uh, and so on and so forth. Our congressmen have to represent 750,000 citizens. It's very hard to do the service work, to do the individual, to really understand the neighborhood when you've got three or four or five neighborhoods crunched together. Um, they have different needs, different populations, different histories. So I favor keeping the city council at 50. Um, I don't think that's um, uh, a change that would be beneficial to Chicago. Okay. What about um, one of the things we, we did um, back really mostly because we couldn't have passed like the ethics ordinance and so forth that you mentioned earlier without Harold Washington being mayor. And some of the reasons like we're doing municipal series right now is hoping that there'll be good ideas that people will try and push through while all elected officials running for office are trying to, you know, win favor with the public. Um, so I'm just looking for things like that. that we have this law that was finally passed uh, that people who do business with the city, vendors, contractors, and so forth, can give, quote, only $1,500 a year to various elected officials. Uh, again, it's not exactly the dollar amount. It's just so many people feel totally intimidated that they have to do it. Even certain people that I've seen as reformers, um, I've seen how this has been misused. Um, but also what we've learned is how uh, it's not followed that much. So yes, maybe the business, you know, you know, a local business can only give that, let's say, alderman $1,500. But then you find all sorts of things. There's a couple of COs or there's this or that. Um, uh, do you think it'd be helpful if we could um, pass some reforms to tighten those regulations or lower the amount, anything to try and reduce people feeling like they have to give to an elected official? I think the better approach, while I favor all of those restrictions, is uh, what Matt Martin has proposed uh, in the city council currently, which is public funding of campaigns, mm -hmm. which has been tested in states like Maine, and cities like Minneapolis, and more importantly for us, probably New York City. Um, and those, uh, the, proposed, the specific proposal for Chicago is that you could give up to, I think it's $250, uh, but your gift, if it's, let's say it's $50, would be matched six times by the city. So you're really giving $300. Uh, and there's, uh, if the candidates for all of them, uh, accept the public funding, then there are real limits on the campaign and much better disclosure. So you can't then accept large contributions, particularly from out of state. Even the small contributions, 60% of them have to come from the ward to qualify for the public funding. Now there are various formulas. Uh, they're slightly different from place to place, but it seems to me this has worked well in Maine. This has worked well in New York City. This has worked 
well in Minneapolis, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, we just simply choose what's the best version for Chicago. And that takes money buying elections away from the big boys and it puts it in the hands of the everyday citizen. And, and if you didn't happen to see that, we're talking about that as just just in, you know, a couple of days ago, uh, there was a hearing on this. You mentioned Alderman Matt Martin from the 47th Ward uh, introduced that. Uh, our, our friend, um, Elisa Kaplan from Reform for Illinois was a major testifier. I'm not sure if you were too, Dick, but yeah, this idea has been around a while. Uh, it has been used in various places. And fundamentally, the goal is to try and prevent what increasingly is the case is money dominates who gets elected. Incredible and- awesome. And look at what it costs. I mean, the current mayor's race, it's going to cost about $5 million for a mayor to be elected, no matter which one of the candidates. Um, They're all in that ballpark. Um, And the candidates that don't raise very much money might as well not be running for mayor. Uh, There's a whole tier of them, about five of them, who have no hope of being mayor in the city of Chicago. They don't have the resources, whatever the virtues are. Uh, In the aldermanic campaigns, the Average cost of an aldermanic collection has been going up and up. Uh, citywide, it's about $250,000 to be elected as the successful aldermanic candidate if it's a contested election. In places like where I live in Lincoln Park, it costs much closer to a million dollars to be able to be elected alderman. Now, it's pretty... Um, obscene to have to have to raise a million dollars to be an alderman. When I, I know you had the same experience. When I ran, I raised the first campaign $25,000. My re-election, I raised $35,000. And even though that's 1970s money and not today's money, uh, there's no reason we should be having an, an average in the city of Chicago of having to raise more than $250,000. And if we were going to have to have that, then it should be publicly funded and not funded uh, by corporations, not funded by uh, wealthy individuals, and certainly not funded by companies, CEOs, and the others who have city contracts. Right. And increasingly dark money that we don't know where it comes from, that we're all going to be learning more about this George Santos character. Uh, And I I won't go into further because lots of people, even including, I think, some people in the Smears race, some of the dollars are coming from very strange places we won't know about. Uh, and people need to know, you know, if candidates are being significantly funded, um, uh, running as a Democrat from powerful Republican sources, the public has a right to know. But we have this major dark money problem uh, in this country. So, yeah, that's really good about the, the public funding and, and the damage, because uh, even it's been years now since the insiders uh, and this is the Democratic Party as well. When they're looking for candidates now for significant offices, they're looking for millionaires. Uh, not always, but so much of the time. Because if I can find a millionaire that can fund their camp- campaign, we'll have a much better chance. So this is a another move in the right direction. Uh, let me ask this. Like, I know it's kind of crazy, but again, let me ask it. Uh, um, just maybe the last will go as long as we need to. But let me. You've. I've been there for a lot of mayors, including the original Mayor Daley. Uh, of course, you've watched others. Um, do you want to just give us, you know, a couple thoughts about the various mayors that you've seen? Um, I sure. guess the first one since you started in 79, that would have been Richard J. Daley, right? Yeah, in 71 it was. Um, 
So I have a major new book coming out next year called Modern <laughs> Manners of Chicago from uh, Harold Washington to Lori Lightfoot. And I think there's a real arc there. Uh, so Richard J. Daly was uh, famously the boss. The Microcoast book is still the best book if someone wants to know about Richard J. Daly. Um, there are several other good books about Richard J. Daly, but the, the boss is the easiest read and the gives you sort of the sense of what it was like. Daly ruled with an iron fist. He was head of both the Democratic Party. The city council was a rubber stamp. And um, he used his mayoral appointments and his control over the party nominations to simply dominate all the various parts of city government. Interestingly enough, his career changed as it did with every mayor who's been there a long time. Richard J. Daly was there 22 years. And in the early year, the first year he was there, there were 14 Republicans on the city council. There was also Linda Prey, the famous, probably the best alderman in the history of Chicago as an independent Democrat. And uh, Daly was much more cooperative with the city council. He was very grateful they approved his budget, his first budget. By the time he came to the end of his career, he was having the rants like the one you referred to uh, about nepotism and, and defending it, giving jobs to his sons and so forth. Uh, Belandic was sort of a, an interregnum as a fancy word for it. He was a continuation of the daily policies and programs. Um, and so he served for two years until he was defeated by Jane Byrne. Jane Byrne is one of those people who came in as a reformer uh, she was very complimentary to, uh, for instance, Marty Oberman and Bill Lipinski, who was a regular Democrat, but was at least more reform minded and had uh, talked to them about uh, they had talked to her about putting together a, a liberal bloc in the city council to carry out her reforms. And she turned instead to Burke and Verdoliak. Uh, Harold Washington was important. Dick, Dick. not a can I, let me just interrupt there, Dick, one point, because uh, I, I was there as a, as a rookie, and I remember one point, Marty Oban and I were walking toward what used to be the old finance committee up on the third floor, and I think we might have been talking about, because Marty was really, this is great, John Burns going to be a reformer, blah, blah, blah. He was really, uh, he really thought that was going to happen. Verdoliak, again, that, that totally powerful um, alderman, um, who's no longer there, but he kind of went by us and he just shook his head and he said, it's over guys. It's over. <laughs> just, just, he didn't even know what we're talking about. That's not all he had. And he had, it was that simple. You, you dreamers, you reformers, you ain't going to win this thing. No chance at all. But uh, so, so go ahead. You were uh, next going to talk about. Um, so with Harold, you got several important things at the same time. So first of all, there was council wars fighting over whether or not there would be uh, good government reform, whether there would be a lifting up of the minorities who had never been allowed a full role in government. Um, there, there were a lot of policies that were also important, uh, balanced uh, uh, economic development, which meant neighborhoods were going to be developed, not just the downtown loop and so forth. So Harold was, uh, we use the term reform in those days, today we'd probably call it progressive um, he set the stage and changed Chicago history. Uh, Chicago politics was never the same after 
83, we've had setbacks, but it's never changed from that arc. And so I began the new book with the arc from Harold. I have different authors for each mayor. Uh, Sawyer, who followed Washington, surprisingly enough, carried out Harold's programs because Sawyer didn't have any real programs of his own. And the city council, as you remember from the time, was totally split. There were 387 divided protocol votes during the Sawyer two-year period. It's the most in Chicago history uh, for such a brief period of time. Um, the general pattern was that you couldn't get a vote that, it, that was sunny or not outside uh, today, that every time that Sawyer needed a majority, he had to put together a new group. So sometimes the reformers would be voting with him, sometimes against, and the machine was the same way. But the machine was split into multiple factions and racial groups. It was a bit of a circus, but it moved the agenda forward. And we then get to Richard M. Daly, which the important thing about Richard M. Daly is he didn't just implement his father's machine. He transmogrified the machine. He made a new machine. And the difference was that he took money that he had learned about when he was state's attorney from the fancy law, law firms and the global economy firms in Chicago and ran a presidential style campaign. Rahm Emanuel was raising money for him. David Axelrod was running the campaign, totally different from the 83 campaign that he ran. And once he was in power, uh, he began to turn us towards a global city. He wanted wrought iron fences to make around the parks and the schools. He wanted to have flowers in the parkway. He wanted Millennium Park. Um, there were things which were amenities that the global economy wanted that Daly was able to provide. And then he began, like his father, to rule with more and more of an iron fist the longer he stayed in office. He was followed in the same way that Richard J. had been by uh, Balandic. He was followed uh, by Rahm Emanuel, who put the Daly machine on steroids. The Daly machine still had patronage, but Rahm Emanuel didn't have any patronage and didn't know quite how to make that work. So what he had was more and more money. So the cost of mayoral campaigns all the way up until Richard M. Daly had been $1 million at max uh, to most of the time, not that much. Uh, after Daly, it rose to $4 million uh, to $7 million in later elections for Richard M. Daly. Rahm Emanuel raised $32 million in a single election, uh, an unheard amount of money, and uh, essentially was able to buy the best uh, uh, technical experts and run the most ads and win the election. Uh, it gets more complicated uh, because each of these mayors had to get at least two racial groups to back them. Uh, they couldn't win on their own racial group alone, so they had to make different alliances. So Harold had the strong support of the Black community, but the Rainbow Coalition of Latinos and Whites, um, Richard M. Daly had the Whites and Latinos. Uh, Rahm Emanuel had much the same, but with more African-American support. <clears throat> and um, we then come down to Lori Lightfoot, who was able to win with uh, white support uh, very significantly. And then in the runoff, uh, won all the 50 wards. Uh, 
Lori Lightfoot picked up the two parts of the Harold Washington agenda, first the government reform, we talked about ethics and so forth. Uh, the second, uh, she's been a pragmatic progressive. She hasn't gone as far as the democratic socialists in the city council or even some of the progressive caucus aldermen. So the good thing is they keep pushing to move faster and faster on things like affordable housing and so forth. But in every, there's really not an ideological split between her and the aldermen. Uh, it's a matter of how fast, how far. And so Lori Lightfoot has been able to govern in the city council with a balance between what might be called the liberal aldermen on the lakefront, the committee chairs, and the progressives. Um, there are two other blocks in the city council, machine aldermen and conservatives, but they're the smaller blocks in the city council. And so we come to the day's election where we're deciding what's going to be the future of Chicago. Will we continue the arc that began with Harold Washington and has come forward to the Lightfoot administration? Or will we roll it back and choose some of the more conservative candidates that are running in the current mayoral election? And the same is true of the aldermanic elections. In most of the lakefront north side rooms, there are six to eight, uh, 10 candidates running. Uh, and many of them are vacancies. So we're going to have a new look to the uh, Northside Lakefront representation and wards like uh, the 49th and 44th and others that have been important um, sources of reform in the past will be uh, determining whether they will continue that pattern or go another way. I think that's kind of a great summary, Dick. I mean, uh, so he covered uh, historical an an analysis of uh, several of our mayors in a very succinct way. Um, I'm, um, uh, I was going to be ending it now, Dick, is there any parting shots? There's so many things that you have uh, in your experience. We've tried to cover a lot of the important things about the old machine and the damage it can do, how significant changes have been made, but um, did slip back in so many ways. Um, the whole focus on participation and how critical that can be in a lot of ways. Um, any final comments? I think the big defining issue as we go forward, whether in this election or soon, will be whether we do have um, neighborhood or participatory democracy. Um, you can't run a city of three million people with one mayor, even a handful of aldermen. You really need to have the input and the citizens need to be involved. Uh, I won't go into all the ways that then builds the base for a larger democracy of representatives in Washington, Springfield. But without that neighborhood participatory democracy, uh, we aren't going to make much progress and our democracy and as a country is at risk. Uh, I'm just, I'm just, to, to just uh, kind of amend that, think of all the policies that you and others have worked on over the years and think what just Dick said, you know, deal with crime, how all these important things without real participation, people knowing a little about each other, having a place to go, a place to complain, they can feel honest about, a place where they can participate. It makes those thoughtful people who work on, on public policies, it makes it so much more difficult. So um, that's one of the key things in Dick's books, and it's uh, fine that we kind of end with that. 
is how do we build those tools, participation? Uh, it's good when we have the political ones. We have a lot of political ones, um, but those will be less important if their if their politics is the overwhelming goal. You know, and I, I we've all been part of some of that. It really needs to also be how do we give regular citizens a chance to decide things for themselves. Uh, so, Dick, thank you for all your books and your writings and your automatic experience. Um, appreciate it very much. Thank you, David. Okay, uh, that is it for Good Government Illinois Today podcast. As I said earlier, uh, you can look us up um, either on Spotify or what's the other one, Nick? Spotify. RSS.com. Oh, thank you. <laughs> RSS.com. <laughs> My my age is showing here. So uh, again, thank you very much to uh, former Alderman Dick Simpson, professor, et cetera. Um, I look forward to uh, having you join us for some future podcasts, either on the Municipal Series or other events. Thank you all.